This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Okay, good morning, everyone. Okay, it's really good that we are looking at today's passage. I think some people had trouble with it uh, as we were doing the Bible study. So I think it's really good that we can come here together to uh, listen to God's Word together and to try to understand it uh, as uh, God's people. So let's go to God in prayer so that we may ask Him, who is the author of His Word, to help us to understand it. Uh, dear Father, as we come before you this morning, we pray that once again we will meet you in your Word. And through your Word that we will be uh, reminded, convicted once again of how we should live before you and the reality of your presence in our life. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. What is the number one rule in gambling? Okay, what is the number one rule in gambling? The number one rule in gambling is that the house always wins. Okay, so you know if you go to the casino at the Marina Bay Sands, the house will always win, right? You will always end up losing. Uh, so I was reading this statistic once before, and apparently this is uh, statistically true across all gambling. Apparently even in the most, uh, uh, I guess, favorable game to you as the gambler, it is like going to the casino and giving them $100 every time you bet and getting $95 back. And you just keep repeating the process over and over again. You, you give them $100, you get $95 back. You give them $95, you get uh, $91 back. And you just keep doing it over and over again until you have no money. And uh, that's the most favorable game, right? I mean, we're not talking about lottery, which is like totally uh, unwinnable. But it's a really frustrating uh, I guess existence, isn't it? So I remember a relative that I know who is a gambler and I remember them uh, being very frustrated all the time. They will always come back from gambling saying, I've got to go back tomorrow to win back my money. But it's very frustrating because you can never ever win back your money and uh, I always remember that person being really frustrated every time they went gambling. Now as we've come to the book Ecclesiastes, the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes have been looking for meaning. Right? What is meaning? What is worthwhile to live for in life under the sun? So he's looking at life under the sun in this world to try to find meaning. And it's been a very frustrating search. Right? A very frustrating search. And it was summed up in chapter 1 verse 2. Right? It's like meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And so far... In this game of life, so to speak, it has been frustration for the teacher. And today as we come to chapter 10, we begin in verse 1 and we can see the frustration of this search coming through in the first verse. So in verse 1 it says, As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Now, if you can uh, think of the imagery, now when you come to the book Ecclesiastes, it's very important for us to have imagination because we're dealing with poetry, we're dealing with pictures, we're dealing with metaphors. Right? So it's trying to show us how a, a bottle of perfume as then as today was very expensive. Right? In, in, in the past when they make perfume, they actually had to make it from uh, nature. Right? They had to actually get it from flowers and things like that. And it, it took a lot of wisdom, a lot of enterprise, a lot of skill to make perfume. 
But yet a small fly, something small, tiny, insignificant, of no value, put into this beautiful jar of perfume or bottle of perfume, overwhelms and corrupts a lot of effort and wisdom made in, I mean, take, and care taken in its production. Right? So what it's really saying is that wisdom is very vulnerable. Wisdom is very weak and limited because a little bit of folly overwhelms great wisdom and great honor. So if you go back and look at the verse before in chapter 9, oh, okay, next slide. Okay, so if you go back to the verse before, right, because you know context is very important. When you read the Bible, always go and look at context. This context allows you to understand a bit more of what it's saying. So in chapter 9, verse 18, in the verse just before, chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So you can see that the, there's a similar idea working through the passage, where one sinner can destroy a lot of good, so a little bit of folly can outweigh a great amount of wisdom and honor. And I think that's the frustration of life under the sun. Because you can live with great wisdom and honor in life, but a little bit of folly can undo and destroy all that wisdom and honor. So I have a few illustrations. You know, like uh, I was reading a newspaper many years ago about how uh, UBS Bank, there was a trader in, uh, in, in, in Japan who lost UBS Bank $100 million with one trade, right? And what they did was, instead of selling, they were meant to sell 16 lots of shares for 610,000 yen. But instead, uh, the trader keyed in to sell 610,000 shares for 16 yen. So you can see that actually, with one little mistake, one little act of folly, you could undo so much wisdom and effort to make so much money. Uh, we can remember the case of uh, Barings Bank. You know, for those of you who are older, you remember Barings Bank? So Barings Bank was the oldest merchant bank in England. Right, it was created uh, much, much, I think like 1760-something, right, 62. And uh, there was a trader in Singapore who, like, uh, you know, hid a lot of trades that he was making. And in the end, uh, lost $1.8 billion. And as a result, bankrupted the bank that has been in existence for 200 years, right? So you can sort of see that just one person's folly can actually outdo and outweigh decades, not just decades, but you know, hundreds of years of wisdom and hard work. Uh, again, if you remember the Space Shuttle Challenger, okay, you remember last time they used the Space Shuttles that Americans used to send up to uh, orbit? So in uh, 1986, the Space Shuttle Challenger actually broke apart 73 seconds after flying, right, and the, 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 the six crew members all died. And when they did an uh, investigation, they found out that, you know, the reason for the crash was just this ring, this uh, special ring which is meant to seal off the liquid propulsion from each section of the, the jet or the rocket ring. And it's just because of just one part that the whole spaceship or the whole space shuttle uh, exploded. So because of this 
failure in the manufacture and design of just one little part, right, just one O-ring, the whole space shuttle exploded. So I think this sort of goes back to what we're, we're reading here in chapter 10, verse 1, that just one little bit of folly undoes a great amount of wisdom in this world. But it's not just at a societal level or at a space shuttle level or a great enterprise level like Barring's Bank, but even at a personal level. So like somebody was saying in one of the Bible study groups that, uh, was, uh, that was related to me, at a personal level, you, you can live your life with great wisdom. But if you make just one act of folly, it can destroy you. So I've been reading this book. Uh, I, was, yeah, I haven't been reading I've been thinking of buying this book, but I can't find it at the library in Singapore. But it's supposed to be a very good book. And it's about this story uh, by this... Uh, this guy is supposed to be some great American writer, right? About how there was a woman who uh, early in life made one bad mistake, right? She married the wrong person. And uh, as a result of that one act of folly, it, it, it sort of shapes the whole of the color of her life. So you can sort of see that truth being played out in reality. That life is very frustrating because little acts of folly have such a disproportionate influence in terms of our lives or the lives of people around us. And as a result... It's so frustrating because you have to act with so much wisdom, but that can be destroyed with a little bit of folly. But yet, as we look at chapter 10, the teacher is very loving and caring, and he wants us to live lives of wisdom. Even though folly outweighs wisdom, but yet, he says, it is better to be wise in this life. So in verse 2, to verse 3, he says, Look, the heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. Even as fools walk along the road, they lack sense and show everyone how stupid they are. Now, as we look here, it, he's, the, the teacher is saying very clearly, Look, even though a little folly outweighs much wisdom, but yet in life, be wise. Right? Because when you're wise, it's completely opposite to being a fool. Like, you know, the wise person is as different as from the right to the left. And it's very clear to the people watching, as they walk around the road, the road could mean the journey of life, or just as they're walking along the road itself physically, that they're stupid. Right? Don't show people how stupid you are by being a fool because why do you want people to see how stupid you are as a fool? Right? Societally, living in a community, don't be foolish because it is a stupid way of living. But instead, be wise. And in verse 4, he then goes on to give you some illustrations of how to live wisely, so that people don't see you as stupid, right? So in verse 4, he says, If a ruler's anger rises against you, do not leave your post. Calmness can lay great offenses to rest, or as a passage, great errors to rest. Now here it says that the wise person is calm and patient, 
in the face of a ruler being angry at you. Now, I think this is a very good piece of wisdom. Uh, the ruler here doesn't necessarily have to be Prime Minister Lee, uh, you know, Lee against you. I, I think here it's, just, it's, it's a generic piece of advice where you know, when your boss is angry with you or your teacher is angry with you or you know, your, whoever is angry with you who's, who's in authority, then be calm, right? be patient. Because I think I've seen in my own experience uh, working as well that there are people who act foolishly when they are faced with the wrath or the anger of someone in authority against you. Now, if you look at this passage, let's look carefully at this passage. It seems to suggest that actually the ruler's anger is justified. Look carefully at the verse. Because you have made a great error. You have made a great offense. And therefore, the ruler is rightly angry with you. Your boss or your teacher is rightly angry with you because you have made an error, a mistake. But people quit. People are unwilling to stay the course. They leave their post because they fear the anger of their boss or their teacher because maybe they are proud. You know, maybe there are times where you're proud and you don't like people to tell you that you've made a mistake, you're wrong. Maybe you fear being rebuked or the embarrassment of being shown that uh, you're not as good as you think you are. Or maybe you're just angry or like, you know, someone in my Bible study said, you know, you just can't tahan anymore that, uh, you know, that, that you made a mistake. So I remember, uh, there was this article in the newspaper a, a while ago, and uh, not, not to pick on the British, but the newspaper article was about this uh, 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 work attitude in England or something, and there was this boss in England who was a chef, and he said that you know he can't get people to come and work in his restaurants because whenever he criticizes them, they get angry, and uh, they don't like being criticized, so they leave. I remember when I was uh, working as an accountant, and one of the most nerve-wracking parts of the year was when we did our like annual financial, you know, presentation before the general manager and the financial controllers, right? And you have to do it in front of all your colleagues, in front of your boss, and you do this presentation in front of them. And often, or not often, lah, sometimes, because you're not as clever and you're not as experienced as the bosses. They will point out your mistakes in front of all your colleagues, in front of your, your, your other uh, superiors, right in front of everybody. I remember one of the most um, nerve-wracking things was one of my colleagues did a major mistake in the, in the calculations and the formulas and it was picked up during the meeting. And uh, my general manager was so angry, he just basically said, okay, enough, go back and redo it and then come back again. And then she had to know, pick up all her stuff and left. And then she came back and did it again. But she was very calm. She did a presentation. And then by next week, everything was forgotten. But at the same time, I remember another colleague of mine who did a much minor mistake. And he was rebuked. And he quit the next day. And then one of my uh, colleagues said to me, Ah, this guy is so foolish. 
He said, you know, we have our year-end bonus coming up already and he still decided to quit now. Why didn't he just wait one month? So what this passage is saying is, you know, the wise person is calm. The wise person is patient. And that person, because of their calmness, is able to, as you see here, to lay great offenses and great errors to rest by their calmness. So the lesson, the first lesson here is, you know, keep calm and be wise. But actually it's not, it's not, actually it's the wrong way around. It's actually be wise and then you keep calm, right? Because the wise person will then keep calm. It goes on to say in verse 8, that whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stones may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. Now, if you look at this passage, um, you see that, that the, the common theme here seems to be unexpected accidents. Okay, you know, it's like when you're walking along uh, wherever and there's construction and then you will see, oh, workplace safety, zero accidents for the last 365 days or like, you know, uh, one accident or something or two accidents, you know, and this is what it's talking about, right? It's like, you know, when you, when you are engaged in some sort of enterprise, accidents happen. But the wise person, the wise person is able to foresee that as you are doing these things, dangerous things can happen. And therefore, you must take precautions. So I know in Singapore, there have been a few workplace accidents which are very prominent, right? You know, like so recently, there's that bridge they were constructing near the PIE, and then the whole thing fell down. And then the Nickel Highway, remember Nickel Highway when they were building the MRT, and then again it collapsed, and you know, quite a few people were killed, right? And uh, this was considered like the, the greatest civil engineering disaster in Singapore. Now, why do these things happen? It's because people make mistakes. They're foolish, right? So in both of those cases, you know, you can read it up yourself. They didn't follow the right procedures. They didn't take the right precautions and therefore accidents happened. And that's what this passage is saying. It's saying because in the world we live in, because of risks in the fallen world that we live in, then the wise person takes precautions to make sure that these things do not happen. Uh, it's like when you join the scouts, right? You know what the motto of the scouts is? Be prepared, right? Be prepared, right? So, you know, it's like you never go to do something when you're not prepared for the risks that are involved. And I think that it's something that we do all the time, right? It's like, uh, uh, like one of my children, right? Whenever we leave, we say, hey, should we bring the umbrella? And they'll say, no, it's not going to rain today, right? But of course, it must rain someday, right? Right? But it's not just about getting wet, right? Because when you're not prepared and bad things happen, it can be, like we read here in verse 8 to 9, things that actually lead to death, right? Being bitten by a snake, war falls on you. I remember when I was in theological college in Australia. I was in Sydney. And you know, Australia has a lot of dangerous animals. You know? So like, uh, there's this thing called the funnel web spider, where if you get bitten, you can die. Like. So I remember when we were living in Australia, I lived in uh, a theological college in this house. It's an old, very old house. 
and we have many families there and the flat, there are many families living there and there's a garden which we have to take care of. And I remember one day, I was with my friends and uh, there's all these uh, loose branches and leaves and I was going to reach and just use my hands. Because in Singapore, you just you know, use your hands and move it all, right? And my friend said, don't, don't touch it, right? You need to always use the shovel to check underneath the branches to see whether the funnel web spider is living there. And I think that's, oh, uh, that was a great eye-opener for me, right? Because you can't just go through life thinking that bad things will not happen to you. You must always take precautions against the risks in the life that we live, right? It's like, you know, why do you wear your seatbelt when you get in the car, because you know bad things can happen. You take precautions because of risk. Now the passage then goes on in uh, verse 10 to 11 and also verse 15. So I've sort of collected them together out there because I think thematically they are the same. If the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed but skill will bring success. If a snake bites before it is charmed, the charmer receives no fee. In verse 15, the toil, the toil of fools wearies them. They do not know the way to town. Now I think that these three verses are, are linked together in the idea where preparation is not made before labor. Right? You, you've not exercised skill before you do your labor. So it's a bit like, you know, I guess none of us chop trees, right? Uh, I mean, none of us use an axe before. I've used an axe before, actually. It's quite, quite dangerous and quite fun. But you, you can understand, if the axe is blunt, then the, the amount of effort you need to cut wood is much greater. But often, we're too lazy, right? We say, ah, the, the, the amount of, if I spend so much time sharpening the axe, then I'll, you know, I'm, I'm not actually laboring, right? But actually... The, the time you spend sharpening the axe actually makes your labor faster and more efficient. In the same way, if you can charm the snake, but you, you don't actually charm the snake before you do whatever you do your snake, then you get bitten by the snake and there is no profit for you. In the same way, I think also as the farmer, you can be so busy toiling in the field that when you decide to go to the town to sell your produce, you don't actually you know, bother to use your GPS or your Google Maps or I don't know, whatever, your map, right? And you get lost on the way to town. Then all your labor of reaping and harvesting is wasted because you don't actually get to sell it. So skill and preparation are important and the wise person prepares themselves with skill and preparation before they labor. And therefore there is profit for their labor. So I'm going to tell you this uh, illustration. I haven't asked my uh, fellow pastors if I can share this, but I'm sure they don't mind. Uh. Now I'm sure, you know, if you come to my house, you notice upstairs there is that IKEA table, right? But actually you don't notice it because it's covered by a tablecloth. But why is it covered by a tablecloth? You see, the three pastors, myself and the other two pastors, came to my house one day and the IKEA table was lying unmanufactured in its box. And we said, ah, Okay, why don't we build this IKEA table? Right, you know, we got the drill, we got everything. So we got all the pieces out. But, you know, actually the way you should do it is you should get all the, 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 the plan, right? The plan, you sort out all the different screws and all the things. 
So we just said, ah, no need lah, let's just chong, man. Right? So, okay, these screws, yeah, they look as if they fit into this hole. So let's just drill through this hole. Then we realize, hey, how come, ah, when you drill, it comes through the wood on the other side, right? Oh, it must, oh, because one screw is longer than the other screws. So we use the wrong screw. Now there are holes, the table, right? So then I had to go back to Ikea and I say, hey, I drew through the holes on the table, right? Can you have these parts to replace so that the table doesn't have holes anymore? They said, no, it's, you have to buy the whole table again, right? <laughs> so see, that's the lesson, you see. The lesson is you must prepare yourself because if you just chong, right, and you just labor without skill and preparation, then actually you don't actually work profitably. Your your work is spoiled, in fact. So now you know why I have a tablecloth on my table upstairs. Now the last piece of advice uh, that the the teacher gives us is in verse 12 uh, to 14, in terms of your words. So words from the mouth of the wise are gracious, but fools are consumed by their own lips. At the beginning, their words are folly, and at the end, they are wicked madness, and fools multiply words. No one knows what is coming. Who can tell someone else what will happen after them? So here, as we, we reflect on fools and the wise, you can see how it's very different, right? Because for the wise person, their words are gracious. And the contrast is the fool is consumed, he's destroyed, or she is destroyed by their own words. But what is it about the words of the fool that is not gracious and which destroys them? It seems to be verse 14, right? That no one knows what is coming, who can tell someone else what will happen after them. So it seems as if the wise person is gracious with their words, so they're, they're quite humble with their words, they're gracious with their words, but the fool is boastful. And it seems from verse 14 that their boasts have to do with the future. They're very boastful about things that they will do, and they will achieve, and they promise many things, but in the end, they are destroyed and consumed by them because they are unable to fulfill what they promise or what they boast. And I think that's very important for us because it's not about making goals in our life. right? It's not about having goals for myself. I want to do this. I want to study this. It's about promising and making boasts about achieving things that you may not be able to achieve because no one knows the future. And we will see that a bit more about that in chapter 11 next week. right? You don't know what's going to happen in the future. So you can't boast about it. Now, as we come to, uh, I guess, the second half of chapter 10, we see now that the mood of chapter 10 is, is very negative. Right? It goes back to the, the, the theme about the folly being greater than wisdom. And I think that's a very important point because as we look at chapter 10, the teacher doesn't want to give us the impression that, well, if you live this wise way, everything will be right, right? This is not like a Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. The teacher is still trying to find meaning under the sun. 
And what he sees next actually shows us that no matter how wise you are, there is still a futile search for meaning under the sun because foolishness overcomes wisdom. So here in verse 16 and 18, right, if you look up here in the slide, it's linked with what we, it's actually in verse 6 to 7. Right? It's about fools who are in high places. So in verse 6 it says, Fools are put in many high positions, while the rich occupy the low ones. I've seen slaves on horseback, while princes go on foot like slaves. It also goes on to say, in verse 16, Woe to the land whose king was a servant, and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed is the land whose king is of noble birth, and whose princes eat at the proper time for strength, and not for drunkenness. Through laziness the rafters sag, and because of idle hands the house leaks. Now what is actually saying here is not some politically incorrect statement, because as we look at this passage, we may instinctively feel that, hey, what is wrong for a slave to be king? Because you know, nowadays, there's this great uh, debate about equality in society, right? You know, because, you know, in, in, in all over the world, there's rising inequality. So you might look at this and say, hey, this is very socially unequal, right? I mean, what's wrong with the poor or the slave being the king? But I don't think that's what he's actually saying. What he's actually saying is that the fool is in a high position, right? And the rich is in a low one. But what he's actually trying to say is it is about the wrong people in power. So the rich person within this section of uh, Ecclesiastes is seen as someone who is hardworking, someone who is prudent, someone who is prepared for the risks in life, someone who knows the way to the town, right? Someone who has exercised skill in life. But this wise person who is rich through wisdom actually is in a low position, whereas the fool is in a high position. He is the ruler. The slave is not the black African slave of uh, America, right? The slave in, in the ancient world was usually a debtor, someone who was a prisoner of war, someone who perhaps was a criminal. So you don't want a criminal or a debtor or a prisoner of war to be the one on horseback, the one who is the ruler, the one who is the general, because they are unfit to rule. And that's what the teacher is trying to say. He's saying that this is the evil that he sees under the sun. And I think that we can see it in the world today. We see people under the sun in the life that we live, taking positions of authority who are incompetent who are foolish in their behavior, they are not wise and they don't belong there. And therefore, as a result, there is evil done. There is the frustration of life under the sun because these foolish people who are in control make foolish decisions which impact the rest of us. Now he goes on in verse 16 to 18 to show that it is not just the foolish person that is in control on power, but it is also those who are lazy and who are self-indulgent. Right? They, again, there is poetic license involved. Right? They are feasting in the morning. It's not as if they are literally feasting, but he's saying, look, in the morning they are getting drunk. In the morning they are eating. Right? They are not eating their oatmeal or their 
you know, their toes or whatever, so that they have strength to labor during the day. They are eating their foie gras or, you know, their, 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 their champagne. They are they're living lives, indulging themselves. And the picture is one of indulgent leaders. Leaders who are not working hard for other people, but they are just leading to enrich themselves. And people who only are selfish for themselves. And they are not working for other people. And, and that's what verse 18 is about, right? Because if they are lazy and they're self-indulgent, then their house, so to speak, is like a, a, a house which is not well looked after. The roof is sagging, the house is leaking. And this picture is not just a picture of their own house. If they are the ones in authority, then the nation, uh, the company they're looking after, uh, the people, the society that they're looking after, they are, in a sense, the image of the leaking house and the sagging house. Because if the leader is self-indulgent, only looking after themselves, and using the people's money or using the people's resources to indulge themselves, and they're lazy and they're foolish, and that's what will be the end result of the company or the society or the nation in which they're looking at. And the shocking thing comes in verse 20, right? Because in verse 20, he says, Do not revile the king even in your thoughts, or curse the rich in your bedroom, because a bird in the sky may carry your words and a bird on the wing may report what you say. And the shock comes here because if we link verse 20 to the overall theme of chapter 10, which is this foolish leader, the foolish ruler, the one who is rich and self-indulgent, then this seems to be a wake-up call, right? Because the wise person, in his wisdom, realizes that in the world under the sun that we live in, we cannot overcome uh, the fool who is in a powerful position. And the wise person will just keep quiet. Now, this may be true in your own company, right? Maybe your boss or your manager is a foolish person. But as a subordinate, what can you do? Right? All you do is you, the wise person keeps quiet, right? It's like, uh, there's no point speaking up because you can't actually change the structure in your company or your organization. So you, you know, the wise person just keeps quiet. And in a sense, it ends in a very sad note, right? Because this is the world that we live in, a life of frustration. A little folly is greater than great wisdom. Uh, you live in a world where foolish people make foolish decisions, but yet they are put in charge of organizations and impact you and other people. And I think that's the overall color of chapter 10, right? It is a frustrating world we live in and the teacher doesn't find satisfaction in it. He doesn't find meaning in it. Uh, I just came back from holiday in Japan and, and I was thinking, you know, even in, in Japan, uh, in all the technology and the great shopping and the food and everything, you still see folly and foolishness. Uh, it's very interesting, in the MRT, the Japanese are very advanced and there's a panel above the exit entrances which always tell you the state of the other train lines. And there are so many train lines in Tokyo. It's amazing, right? Like, we only have, like, North-South Line, East-West Line, you know, Circle Line. They have, like, so many lines that boggles the mind, right? But on the panel over the, uh, the entrance of the, the train itself, when you're in the compartment, frequently there's always this thing. Uh, this line is down. 
passenger injury. This line is down, passenger injury. But they're always getting injured because they are like trying to board these trains which are overfull and they're getting caught in the door and all these sort of things, right? Uh, right in front of me, I, I almost saw an accident where there was this very young man who tried to dash in and tried to squeeze into the train and, and basically got his laptop and his arms caught on the door. So these foolish people are basically making all the train lines stop because of their foolish accents, right? And, um, you know, even as I was on holiday, I was thinking, you know, this is such a frustrating world that we live in, right? It's like, this can't be all there is to life because there's no meaning to it. But I think that even more so, uh, when the foolishness of other people doesn't just lead to train lines going down, but actually physically hurting other people, uh, that's when you realize actually there must be more to life than this world. So I was reading this book, or I bought this book, but I'm in the process of reading a book. It's called A Grace uh, Disguise. It's a very sad book, and I'll recommend it to you. It's a, a book about um, this guy who shared about how there was a tragic car accident. And um, his mother, his wife, and his daughter died in the car accident. And so he was left to look after three children by himself. So because of one mistake, right, which led to this car accident, uh, which wasn't his mistake, it took away basically three generations of his family and he was left as a single father to three children. So as you think about a world in which these things happen, you realize that what the teacher is trying to say is this world is not the world in which we live for. We must be living for something greater. And I think at the end, in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, in the next slide up here, God actually tells us that this world is passing away. In Revelation chapter 1 it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write, down, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And we look forward to the world to come, not because we have some vain hope or, you know, like someone said to me, we just need a crutch to get through this life. But we know that the words of Revelation 21 are true because Jesus Christ has risen again and he's risen to be the wise king in this world. So I hope that as we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 10, uh, it actually takes away all the illusions of life under the sun. That it is a frustrating life. And we're not mind, meant to find meaning in this life, but we're meant to actually look forward to the life to come. And as Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, we know that He is the wise King who will rule wisely over us, uh, not foolishly. Okay, So let's go to God in prayer. Uh, dear Father, as we come before you today, 
Help us to see that our lives here are full of frustration because folly is greater than wisdom. And that even those in power, those in authority, can be foolish and lazy and self-indulgent. And as a result, we can do nothing about it. Dear Father, help us as we lead our busy lives to meet with you once again in your word and to be reminded that our future, our hope is not in this world, but in the new heavens and the new earth. And that the resurrection of Jesus guarantees for us that he is the wise king who will rule forever. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.